0: That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast indeed.com slash blue wire sports terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed.
1: And welcome back everybody to another episode of benched with Bubba episode 53. I've been doing a lot of fantasy talk of late and we're going to mix it up here for uh, the baseball fans, give them a taste and then for you football junkies, Get you in the wagering mode. And to do that, I have a special guest with me tonight. You can find him on bangthebook.com on Twitter at skatingtripods. His name is Adam Burke. Adam, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing good, Bubba. How are you doing tonight, man? I am doing great. It's great to have you on here. Uh, Really good, really good follow on Twitter. I'm glad I started doing that. And um, it's fun. I got to know you through baseball and then picked up a few other things. So, really looking forward to this.
0: I'm looking
2: forward to it too. And you know what? I think you're an excellent follow as well. And and you guys over there do a phenomenal job on the daily fantasy side. We don't do too much of that over at bang the book, but uh, you guys are a tremendous resource for that. And, uh, you know, I really, really appreciate and enjoy the work that you guys do as well.
1: That means a lot. I appreciate that. Uh, we're trying to, we don't have the, you know, we're not the big boys, but we, we try to have fun and get it out there. So I do appreciate that a lot. Um, let's get into it we're going to start it off with uh, the cleveland indians for those that don't follow adam he is a big time big time cleveland indians guy so we're going to do some of this talking and we'll kick it off with they're not in my eyes they're not as dominant as they were last year and coming into the season people thought they'd run away with the central i still feel they're a very good team i still feel like they're gonna get things figured out how do you feel the season's gone so far as an indians fan
2: Well, I got to be honest with you. I mean, you kind of expected a hangover after last year and with with the way that things ended. And, I mean, I was at Game 7. I was at every playoff game, actually. And, you know, uh, that that feeling doesn't go away. And, and, I mean, I know what it felt like for me, and I can only imagine what it felt like for the players that were emotionally, physically, mentally invested uh, to the degree that they were. So I'm not really surprised, honestly, with the slow start to this year. And I drew a lot of parallels to what the Cavs did, you know, after they lost to the Warriors in the finals, got off to that slow start. They were around the 500 mark, I think after about 40 games or so, then flipped that switch, turned it on. They knew that they were going to make it into the playoffs. They knew that it was going to be a one month season with the Eastern conference finals and the NBA finals. It felt the same way for the Indians this year. They knew that they were going to make the playoffs. They knew that they were going to win this division. It's not a good division. We know that because the Indians have been leading it for a long time, despite not playing all that well for the majority of the season so far. So I wasn't surprised with the hangover, and I'm totally fine with the way that the season has gone. I mean, really, your end goal in Major League Baseball is to get to that 19-game tournament at the end of the year, the best of five, the best of seven, and the best of seven, and see what happens. It's a total crapshoot. It's all about variance. I mean, look, last year the Indians had one starting pitcher in Corey Kluber. Trevor Bauer's decent. Josh Tomlin is you know, a guy that probably wouldn't make most rotations out there in the big leagues. They took the Cubs to game seven, and they were up three to one and had three shots to finish it. So it's really just about getting into the tournament, and I think the Indians realized that, and they wanted to pace themselves a little bit more because some guys had very, very high workloads last year. You had three guys that had over 680 regular season plate appearances plus another month-plus of the playoffs. So I think that they just kind of put themselves in for the long haul, and I think the season's gone fine. They're basically on the same uh, winning percentage pace that they were on last year, and no one's had a really significant injury yet. You know, I know – Corey Kluber had the back issue. Andrew Miller's got the knee issue. But those are guys that obviously Kluber's been great, and Miller will be back. So that's all that matters to me is be healthy on October 1st or October 3rd or October 4th, whenever the playoffs start, and then go from there.
1: No, that's what's well said. Uh, as a guy that's unfortunate in the Bay to enjoy the good days as we have the bad days right now, it is a total crapshoot. The Giants got there twice just – Sneaking in on the wild card, winning wild card playing games, and then that one year against the Royals, it was it was mad bum and mad bum alone. You ever so you just have to get there, like you said, and then you just see what happens. Um I do like your team. I agree. It's tough to do what any team has to do the year after just getting there, let alone getting as close as they did three games to one. Um, I do love their chances and all my preseason stuff. I I really was really, really high on the Indians, and I haven't faltered in that. I was just kind of surprised, but what you said makes complete sense. Um, From the outside looking in, it it clarifies a lot. How – you mentioned there's been no real serious injuries, but the weird thing is, as you did say, Kluber was by himself last year. You know, this year you've had Carrasco kind of in and out, Salazar in and out. You have Clevenger, who's I think a really good young arm, just hasn't got the consistency yet. Uh, Bowers looking better now. The slider's back. There's so many factors in that rotation. I didn't even name everybody. How do you think that rotation's finally going to form come postseason?
2: Well, obviously, Kluber will be at the front. I mean, he's your game one starter as long as, you know, he gets to the playoffs healthy, and and obviously that's – at this point, my two biggest hopes are that Corey Kluber's healthy and that Andrew Miller's healthy. That's ultimately all that matters to me here over the last, what, six weeks or so of the regular season because they'll win the division. It's a matter of by how much. I don't know if they're invested in home field advantage, because if you remember last year in September, they really made a push for home field advantage. I was hoping they'd give Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez some days off here and there, but they made that push. Didn't seem to bother them, but you know, I, I wouldn't want to play. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to play around with that here this year, but Kluber's your number one and Carrasco's probably your number two. I, I'm, I have some concerns about the mental makeup of Carlos Carrasco when it comes to a situation like the playoffs, where it feels like almost every plate appearance is high leverage, as opposed to in the major or in the regular season, where it's just the eighth and ninth innings, are real high leverage. So I'm kind of curious how they'll play that if they do start on the road in Boston uh, or in New York. Obviously, the Yankees have a chance to win that division as well. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Bauer pitches game two, but you know, odds are they'll probably go with Carrasco two, Bauer three. And then they'll have a decision to make if Danny Salazar is healthy with that four spot between him and Mike Clevenger. And honestly, I I would probably go with Clevenger just for the simple fact that I think Danny Salazar is more of a weapon right now out of the bullpen than Clevenger would be because you mentioned Clevenger's inconsistency. The control isn't always there. The fastball command isn't always there. And you know, if he goes out there and starts, maybe you get three innings out of him, you get one time through the lineup, you can deal with that. If you bring him out in the fourth, fifth inning, You have fewer chances to score runs if he gives something up. So I think Clevenger would be my preferred number four. I don't know what Tito Francona is going to do. and Obviously, I don't even know if Danny Salazar is going to be healthy. But one thing that's been really interesting here in the regular season that I've read about a little bit here lately, and I think some of the guys over at The Athletic Cleveland covered this, Trevor Bauer has been following Corey Kluber, and what he's been doing is he's been charting every Corey Kluber start to see what he does, to see what's effective if he's facing the same opponent. That was something that they kind of piggybacked in the playoffs a little bit as well. And that's why you saw Kluber and Bauer both throwing their curveball a lot more in the postseason and then a lot more here this season as well. So there is some value possibly in having Bauer follow follow Kluber. Uh, but you know I mean either way, I, I don't know if it, it really matters that much. You know it, it's all going to come down to variance, uh, sequencing, and then of course the health of, of Andrew Miller and Cody Allen because Kluber's going to get you where you need to go after that. Hey, Carlos Carrasco's unproven in the playoffs. Trevor Bauer is what he is. Mike is unproven in the playoffs. Danny Salazar had no starts last year. So, you know, it's still going to be Kluber and and you know, hope that you can bridge the gap to the to the back end of the bullpen.
1: Yeah, and when you're talking about Tito in the playoffs, the back end of the bullpen, like you're saying, is four, maybe five innings. So just don't blow it basically with some of those arms. I, I do like the idea of Salazar out of the pin. His, his stuff is so dynamic. And he's one of those guys that I feel like in a two to three inning role can really utilize that dynamic pitching compared to having to kind of spread it out over a full start. That, that'll be interesting to see how they do that. And obviously, a healthy Andrew Miller is very key to the situation. Talking about health, Michael Brantley's out at the moment. Kipnis has been in and out all year. Are they I know it's it's, it's hard to tell, you know, six weeks out. Do you think they're going to be good to go come playoff times, or are some of these injuries more serious than they're letting on? Because Kipnis has been going back and forth all year.
2: You know, uh, honestly, Bubba, I, I don't know. I mean, Michael Brantley is, you know, he, for one thing, he's a liability in the outfield, even when he is healthy. So that's a situation where I'm I'm not in a hurry for him to come back. And also, when you look at how well this team is playing without Jason Kipnis, because Kipnis is going to be inserted into a top three spot in the lineup, which shouldn't happen, uh, but he will be. And also he's a negative defensively at second base right now. They've got Jose Ramirez at second. Who's a plus second baseman and Gio Urshela who's plus borderline plus plus at third base. He just can't hit worth a damn. So, you know, I, I think that Kipnis will probably be ready to go. Brantley should be ready to go. They're supposed to activate Chisholm and Abraham Almonte here on Friday when rosters expand. So Chisholm Hall will be good to go, but I'm kind of curious to see how they do this thing. I mean, the regular season is one thing. The playoffs, with a, a different run environment, you know, there are just different nuances to the game. Do you put your best defensive outfield out there? If you do, that doesn't include Michael Brantley. Do you put your best defensive infield out there? Well, you know, Jason Kipnis probably has to be part of that. So that sort of weakens the team a little bit. I'm not sure how they're going to play it. They've got a lot of guys, especially now with Jay Bruce, uh, who was a great pickup by Mike Chernoff and Chris Antonetti. I don't know. There's only three outfield spots, you know, and Encarnacion's your DH. Santana's been very, very good at first, so he's your first baseman. I'm not exactly sure how they're going to play this. It's a good problem to have, but it has been a problem this year to the point where they kind of wait, and somebody winds up going on the DL, and they don't have to make a decision. They're going to have to make decisions when they make that ALDS roster. So I presume Brantley will be on it just from a veteran standpoint. Chisholm will be on it. And we'll have to see how they mix and match because, you know, if they do face Boston, which is certainly what it looks like right now, they're going to face Chris Sale once, if not twice. They'll probably face Eduardo Rodriguez and Drew Pomerantz. All three of those guys are left-handed. I don't know if Rick Porcello is in that Boston ALDS rotation right now. If he's not, that's a consideration too because you need to be playing Brandon Geyer and Austin Jackson. And then you've got Bradley Zimmer, your best defensive outfielder, guy that makes things happen on the bases. Again, it's a good situation to be in because they have a lot of options, but I'm not sure how exactly they're going to you know, distribute playing time come the postseason.
1: That is quite the embarrassment of riches right there. When you break it down that way, people forget a lot about guys like Geyer and Jackson. I know Ursula's made just the defensive wizard that he's been. We've tweeted at each other sometimes about the plays he makes over there and no one knows who he is. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. You keep him and bring him in as defensive replacement, but then – you know, you just wasted a spot basically for part of the order. It will be very interesting uh, how they construct that, as you said. Um, what would you – well, we'll skip that question. Do you think they're winning the AL Central or is it a wild card thing? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this.
2: Yeah, no, they're, they're going to win this division. Um, you know, I mean, I, I give Minnesota a lot of credit, honestly. I mean, what the Minnesota Twins have done this year has been very, very impressive, and it's – it's not a coincidence that they have a former Indians exec in Derek Falvey as a general manager right now. I think something like 12 or 13 teams have a GM that was employed by the Indians in the past, and it may even be higher than that now. Uh, they're just, they've always been advanced. They've always been ahead of the curve. They've had to be based on the situation that they're in. They had to build up from you know, a team that was a laughing stock for 30 years. and they moved to Jacobs Field in 1994, they had to find those edges, and they started finding them in the early 90s. They made some good draft picks, made some good trades, that type of thing. They've always been ahead of the curve. And one thing that Minnesota has done extremely well this year is they have shifted defensively in the outfield more than any other team I've seen this season, and it has really helped them. That's why they've had guys like Irvin Santana post really good bad-ups against throughout the year because you know they're, they're just positioning their players well. So they're finding little inefficiencies to stay in this race. And, I mean, right now they'd be the second wild-card team, so I give them a lot of credit for that. power to catch the Indians... Kansas City obviously doesn't either. Uh, no one's catching this team. The only question at this point to me is can the Indians get the second seed or can they possibly get the number one seed and take home field away from Houston who hasn't played well for the last three or four weeks? And obviously, you know, those players have a lot on their minds right now with, with everything that's going on down there with the Hurricane. So, you know, the Indians are set up very nicely, and and I'm kind of hoping they get to a point where they can start to sit some of these guys down. They can start to play, you know, Eric Gonzalez at second, Gio Urshela at short, Andy Diaz at third. Get some of these guys a blow. Give them a little bit of a breather so that they can go into the playoffs strong. So to me, it's not a matter of if they win the division. It's a matter of by how much and where they wind up in the home field chase.
1: That's a good point. They, they do have a great shot the way Houston's been playing lately to try to sneak into that that top spot. And as you well know, you get the Jake Rockin for home field advantage. That's going to be huge, especially for some of those guys that don't have quite the experience, even though most of this team was there last year. There were a bunch of young names you did mention that might come into the mix. Um, you did mention the Twins and the Royals. Do you think any of them have a shot at winning the wild card? The Twins are second right now. I am just—I have no idea why the Royals didn't sell. I know, I know why, but I don't agree with it. Um, do you think either one of them sneak into the wild card?
2: I mean, it's possible. I don't think Kansas City does. I just, I feel like this is a team that, you know, it, it had its peak there in the middle of the season. It made that chase. And, and since the trade deadline, when they did add guys like Trevor Cahill, they pick up Melky Cabrera. Uh, I mean, since then, they've dropped. I think their playoff percentage chance over at Fangraphs has dropped like 22, 23%, something like that. So, you know, they're a team that has really fallen off the pace. And I just don't know if they've got the personnel there. Uh, to bring it back up. And then, like you said, I understand why they bought. I don't think it was a smart thing to do. But at the same time, we saw that the rental market wasn't great either for picking up you know, prospects and other assets. So I guess you, you go ahead and go for it because you're facing a three- or four-year rebuild anyway. Uh, the Twins very well could. I mean, the Angels don't impress me. Baltimore doesn't impress me. You got Kansas City there. Texas doesn't impress me. Seattle, if they had healthy pitching, I think it would be them that would find a way get into that wild card game, but they don't have that right now. So I don't know, but I will say this. Something that's going to be very interesting is it's a one-game playoff. Absolutely anything can happen, as we know. You've got a Yankees team that's got a decent rotation. Now they picked up Sonny Gray, a phenomenal bullpen, pretty decent cast of position players. That team may be gone with a one-game playoff with Minnesota or the Angels or Baltimore or something advancing. That would be huge for whoever the number one team is, and then obviously whoever advances because taking out the Yankees would be uh, really significant. I was talking with a couple of buddies about this today. To me, right now, with the strength of that Yankees bullpen, they're the team I'd be most worried about if I was a fan of an AL playoff team.
1: Oh, yeah. The Yankees could easily put together basically what you guys did last year in the bullpen. They could shorten games big time. Um, and not and, and by shorting the games also could allow guys like Severino or Gray or someone smaller outing so they could definitely do a three-man rotation or not to worry about any of that. There's a lot of angles the Yankees could could use, and, it, and that is a bit terrifying. I agree with you there. But um, the Twins, I love what they're doing. I, I think they're ahead of schedule big time, and they're pitching. Well, almost all the wild card teams' pitching staffs are just a disaster. It, it's unbelievable. Um, outside of the Yankees. The Yankees probably probably the best starting staff, too. But um, it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, and uh, the playoffs as a whole should be awesome. But last but not least, this one wasn't on the outline, but it came to my mind when the AFL rosters got released yesterday. The guy, Francisco Mejia, your guys is just outstanding catcher. He's going to the AFL to play third base. Is this, is this Yon Gomes making this happen or what's going on with that?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that the Indians are very, very big on versatility. Uh, they want to have as many guys that can play different positions as possible because I think to them, they, they find that to be an inefficiency where you know they can get a guy at a low cost, a league minimum cost or a couple million dollars and, you know, be able to play him all over the field. I think that's something that you know, they really value in their players. It, to me, I, I guess I sort of look at this thing in a couple of different ways. One is you want as many positions as possible to get his bat in the lineup because he's a major league-ready hitter right now. Defensively, from a game-calling standpoint, he's not ready as a catcher, and they have two guys that are pretty good defensively. They have low offensive ceilings, but you know, still, they're guys that uh, you can put out there and, and not really worry about, especially with how good they are at other positions offensively. But I also kind of wonder a little bit here – if this is maybe a move looking a year or two down the road, because you mentioned Jason Kipnis and all the injury problems that he's had. The aging curve for second baseman is the sharpest of any position, pretty much outside of catcher. And Kipnis has had all these muscle injuries over the last few years. I think they're kind of looking at him as a depreciating asset. And that would mean moving Jose Ramirez to second, which gives them a gaping hole at third base because they don't have anybody in the system that can come up and play third base at a, at a pretty good level both offensively and defensively. or Shella can pick it, he can't hit it. Andy Diaz, they don't like his defense. So if you put Mejia over there and you know try some things out, maybe it's just to work on his footwork, maybe it's to work on his throwing arm, I don't know. But to me, it, it sort of speaks to maybe a big-picture type of thing to where they may expect to have a hole here at third base sometime in the next year or two.
1: Makes a lot of sense, and like you said, get his back to the to the big sooner because that's not the issue right now. If people are paying attention to him in the minors, he's hitting everything, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, be interesting to see how he does this fall and see if uh, come spring, if we see him in camp playing a lot of third base for the Indians as well. Okay, let's take a turn to college football week one wagering. Let's kick it off for those. Well, like I said earlier works for our rights for produces pod the daily podcast for bangthebook.com. they talk a lot of wagering on that so please go check that out but what i want to kind of do is uh first let's get your approach on how you look at wagers do you prefer faves or dogs over unders you know teasers parlays things you tell people not to usually do but um what's your approach when you're looking at bets
2: uh, it's a, it's a really loaded question. And, and I know that, you know, there's a, probably a wide range of, of betting prowess out there among your listeners. So the first thing that I do, and I've done this a few years and I didn't do it last year and I wish I had, but I picked it back up again this year is I put together power ratings and, and you can find these Phil Steele does them. Uh, I know Rolf Michaels over at WagerTalk.com, Who's a guest that I have on Thursdays on my show. Uh, he posted his publicly. He used to work for Phil Steele's magazine over at North Coast Sports, and I know uh, Brad Powers, another guy that posts his, but they're a really good starting point to have. And, and basically, what I do is uh, I have a scale. It's a 100 point scale. I break it down by position groups. I value each position group, and then I also value the coaches. And then I come up with a number. When I get the number for both teams, I'll apply home field advantage, and then I'll have a spread for the game. So then I use those as my guide, and I look at the betting market out there, and I say, okay you know, well, this game is is off from my number by a few points. For example, a game that's coming up here on Saturday, uh, Cal and North Carolina. I've got this game, North Carolina minus eight. The line out there in the market's anywhere from minus 12 to minus 13. So for me, Cal is a play at that point. So I approach it that way, at least, you know, early on in the season where I feel like I've got some edges on the sports books. But a lot of other times, you know, I'm, I'm just looking for opportunities to play, you know, against public perception Sort of, you know, when you look at, at anything really, you want to buy low and sell high. And, and that's a lot of times what I like to do when it comes to betting football as well, both college football and the NFL. You know, you don't want to overreact to what you saw in a one week sample. And, you know, Bubba, you know this because we're both baseball guys. Sample size is very, very important. And if you're basing things on one 60 minute game, well, you're probably going to cost yourself in the long run. So I like to look for situations like that where you find a team that you know, maybe had a misleading final score or a team that was plus four in turnover margin, a game turned into a blowout. Well, they're probably not that good. They probably won't be that good that following week, but the betting market's going to pile on. You know, they're going to see a, a lopsided score, and they're going to want to side with that team that won big. Well, that's not always the way to do it. So you know, there are a lot of different ways to do it, a lot of different ways to go about it. I don't care if a team is a favorite or a dog. I don't care if I'm playing an over or an under. As long as I feel like it has value, but i will say i probably gravitate more towards playing underdogs and unders just because you, know, you get that perception bias out there on those big name teams on those teams coming off of big performances and at that point you're probably getting an extra half point or a point of value on the underdog half point point of value on the under something like that so i do tend to gravitate that way but you know what the one thing that i will i will tell everybody out there i'll caution everybody and i don't want to you know, deter anybody from betting, but it is a very complex market. It's like anything else. I liken it a lot to the stock market. You know, if you're not informed, if you're just out there throwing money around, you're going to get buried. So, do as much research as you can with what you have available. You know, pay attention to the people that that know what they're talking about, and you know, have some fun with it too. I mean, you know, if you do want to get involved in betting, bet small amounts—five, ten dollars a game. Something that's not going to break you. Something that's not going to change your your lifestyle. If you just want to have some action, some fun, some skin in the game, you know, do that. But also if you want to take it seriously, you know, follow the market and, and follow the people out there that, that are in the know.
1: Yeah, it's a very good point, Dan. If you guys need to know anybody that's in the know, A, Adam's website has a bunch of them. And there are a ton out there. We know uh, doc from our website just that is week one podcast. There's tons of options out there. Um, when it comes to the lines, you talked about your power rankings, which I've heard a lot of people in the know do. It's a great, great tool. How much do you pay attention to the like, opening line or closing line movement, even if it, you know, if, it, if it shoots one way or the other big time, even if it's not as much to your power rankings per se, but just obviously it's going to be a bunch of but if it's just like out of hand, if it just looks really, really crazy if it took this massive swing and the public's all over one side compared to the other?
2: Well, I mean, I, I follow the market every day and, and I pretty much have my odds screen up all day long while I'm awake because it's something I need to pay attention to. I mean, not, not just for myself and, and my personal bankroll and all that, but you know, because I, I have a job in the sports betting industry with what we do over at bangthebook.com. So I need to be aware of these things. I need to be you know, watching the market, watching the news wire. Twitter is phenomenal for that. Twitter sucks for a lot of things, <laughs> but Twitter is great for news. I mean, it is the ultimate news source now about absolutely everything. So if a line starts moving, the first thing I do is go to Twitter and I look to see, you know, was there a suspension announced? Like, I'm pretty sure, you know, another 15 kids from Florida will be suspended tomorrow for something. Uh, You know, I need to know that. That's something I want to know. It's something I want to look at. I want to look and see. And if I don't see anything, then I'm going to know, okay, somebody with some influential money or somebody with a lot of clients released this play. They're on this play. They're making a move on this game. And I'll pay attention to that. You know, I'm not going to necessarily chase the steam at a worse number. But, you know, it's it's important to follow the market like anything else, you know, because uh, you're, you're going to catch things. You're going to see tendencies. This works with baseball, too. You know, I mean, I, I'm a sabermetrics guy, and I, I know you are, too, Bubba. And, you know, when you look at the betting market for Major League Baseball, you can tell why lines are moving the way they are. If you've got a pitcher with a high ERA, a low XFIP, a high left on base percentage, money is going to come in on that guy or money is going to come in against that guy. You know, it all depends on, on how you look at it out there in the market. and. You know, I, I like to look at opening numbers, and I like to see where numbers go because that's relevant to how I adjust you know, the way that I look at these specific teams. I want lines to move in the direction of my number. That's what I'm looking for. I want to have an opener that's favorable to me, and then I want to see the, <coughs> that number move in my direction. So you know, it, it's important to watch the market. It's important to get the opening lines if you feel like you're confident in them. A lot of people bet day of the game. You know, that's, that's just the nature of the beast. A lot of people don't have time. To sit and watch the market all week, don't have time to put a ton of research into it. But you know, if you are going to bet the day of the game, pick up an odds screen. There's plenty of good ones out there. Uh, You know, Vegas Insider, (coughs) excuse me, Vegas Insider, SBR odds, uh, Don Best. There's a lot of them out there. See what the action has been like on that line. See if it's moved up. See if it's moved down. And that has to be a factor for you, You even if you are just betting five or ten bucks. Information is everything. So, you know, you have to follow the market. Obviously, I have to follow it a lot closer than other people do. But I think there is a lot of benefit to doing it. And, you know, even too, I mean, if, if you just want to have an idea of how a game is going to go, if you're playing daily fantasy for the NFL, if you're playing fantasy football for college or NFL at Yahoo or fan tracks or ESPN or whatever, you know, the betting market can shed some light on some things too. I mean, if a total's moving down quite a bit, Maybe points aren't going to be scored in that game. Maybe you don't want to put that guy in your flex. Maybe you want to leave him on the bench. You know, There's a lot of stuff that goes into it, and, and there's a symbiotic relationship between betting and fantasy that I think a, a lot of people you know, can use to their advantage.
1: Oh, there's no doubt about that. I use that every single day for baseball. I use it for football. You look at team totals. You look at over-unders. You look at money lines. You look at all that kind of stuff. It makes a big difference on – um, for the most part, you know, just like you said with baseball, the variance in baseball, you can't predict baseball. But it, it points you in the right direction, and that's what you're looking for. Um, when you're looking at making your wagers, you mentioned how, you know, the average Joe likes to sit down on Saturday morning and place their bets. And that's fine. That's what you do. And like you said, you still pay attention. Ten bucks is ten bucks. It doesn't matter. You still want to win. When you're looking at it every, every day, and I know a lot of people that do pay attention to every day, they like to bet early in the week. Do you prefer early in the week? And if you do better later in the week, if the number changes to a decent amount, do you cover on the other end?
2: Uh, you know, I'll bet early in the week as long as I'm confident in my number and and I like my power ratings this year. I like you know the way that I've done them. I compared them with some people that I really respect. And I do post my power ratings every week over at bangthebook.com. I'm posting them on Mondays. I'll update them every Monday throughout the season as well. Um, you know, I, I'm confident in my numbers, and a lot of numbers have moved in the direction of my line here for week one as we've gotten to game week, which is, you know, important. It's, it's a good barometer for seeing, you know, if you are rating these teams correctly. So, you know, I like to get in early in the week, especially love to hit the totals market when it pops because totals that come out on Monday and Tuesday are very, very inefficient, especially early on in the year. You'll see, like, Georgia Southern and Auburn, I think, open 52 or 52 and a half. Within two hours, it was 59 because that was just a bad number that came out. And those things do happen. And, like, we saw a big move a couple days ago on the Louisiana-Monroe-Memphis game coming up on, on Thursday night because the remnants of Hurricane Harvey are going to be rolling through the Memphis area. That's actually a game that opened 67, went up to 70. Now it's all the way down to 63 because of the weather forecast. So, you know, I'll bet whenever I need to. You know, I'll play early in the week. I'll see where lines decide to go. If I want to buy out, I can. If I want to put more on it, I can do that too. Uh, But you know, you you just—it's one of those things where I would tell people to, you know, just kind of watch it for a while at first. You'll start to pick up a feel for it. You'll start to recognize, you know, when things are going to go a certain way. And one other thing that's very important, and I talked about this uh, actually on on the last two shows I've had over at Bang the Book, is that if you know where to look, if you know which sports books to look at. You can get an idea of where these games are going to go. For example, everyone, you know, when you get beat writers that don't know anything about gambling, they'll cite Bovada odds. Everyone wants to cite Bovada odds. Some people even think it's in Las Vegas. It's not, obviously, but it's a very public book. It's a very favorite-oriented book. Other places like Pinnacle, for example, very sharp-oriented book. So when you see different lines at those two places, you have an idea of where the influential money is on a game, so that'll help you out as well. It'll help you in terms of figuring out where a line's going to go. So in a very long-winded way to answer your question, uh, I like to play early, but then I'll look for opportunities as we go throughout the week as well. Uh, you know, When I get the target numbers that I'm looking for, because you know, just because I like one side of a game, just because the people I talk to like one side of a game, there are probably going to be other groups out there that like the other side of the game. And you know, when they get down, I get a little bit more value on my side. You want to jump on things like that.
1: Yeah, and, and in, in that you brought up a really good point that it's good to have multiple outs, at multiple books. Like you said, you have the public one uh, in Bovada. you got the pinnacle, which is very sharp. So, you know, if, if you're a dog person or a favorite person or you just want the best line that you think works for your power ratings, it's good having multiple options to uh, make those wagers. Let's take a look at uh, some of the, the action this week. Outside of the three we're going to talk about shortly, are there any, you know, games that you're, you're targeting this week that really have your attention?
2: Yeah, there are a few games I'm targeting. I mentioned that Cal-North Carolina game, and, and for those that, that don't know, uh, North Carolina lost a ton from last season. You know, not just uh, with the loss of Mitch Trubisky, obviously, who, you know, was the second overall pick to Chicago, but they lost their running back. They also lost a couple of their top wide receivers. They're basically replacing almost all of their offensive production Ah, uh, from last year. So you know that's a spot where even a team like Cal, who's not all that great, who's traveling cross country, you know it would seem like a bad spot for them, but North Carolina is replacing so much that you know it's really, really difficult, I think, uh, for them to you know get off to a, a good start here in this game. Uh, another spot that I kind of like a little bit uh, is Middle Tennessee State. They take on Vanderbilt. This is a huge game for Middle Tennessee State. I don't know if people realize this, but uh Vanderbilt is in Nashville, Middle Tennessee is in Murfreesboro, which is actually on the way to the Jack Daniel's distillery for anybody who uh stays in Nashville and wants to head out that way to Lynchburg. Uh but Middle Tennessee last year lost their starting quarterback Rick Stockstill or uh, Brent Stockstill, excuse me, Rick is the head coach. Uh they lost him in the game against UTSA. After that, they were terrible. They gave up a ton of points. But they lost their quarterback who took care of the football, replaced him with a guy who hadn't really played much through as many touchdowns as interceptions, and the season-to-date numbers for Middle Tennessee State by the end of the year were not great. But when Stock still played, they were pretty good. So I actually have them as a one-point underdog in this game. The number opened 5.5. It's still at 3.5, so I think there's st- still some value there. But that's a really big game for Middle Tennessee State. I have them power-rated uh, quite a bit higher than some of the people that I talk to. So that's a spot where I think we're getting some really good value there. You, know, you get some of that SEC bias as well. That's something that does come into play a little bit uh, in some of these games. And then one more that I like, uh, actually a couple of them, I already mentioned that Louisiana Monroe Memphis total, wind and rain. Wind is the biggest factor when it comes to college football totals and why they move. Teams are accustomed to playing in the rain. They can play in the snow, but when it's windy and you have to cut the playbook in half, that's when you don't get a whole lot of points. So that was one that I got in on a little bit earlier in the week here. But the other one I'm looking at is actually Purdue. They're a 24-and-a-half-point underdog against Louisville. It's a neutral site game in Indianapolis. Uh, Purdue is not good. You know, Obviously, everybody knows that. But they've got a new head coach in Jeff Brom this year. Uh, David Blau is questionable. He's their starting quarterback. So make sure that he's playing uh, before you do anything with this game. But I've actually got this number down below three touchdowns. I've got it at 20-and-a-half, 24-and-a-half right now. Uh, it's one of those cases where you know Louisville's got Lamar Jackson, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, this and that. And and people just look at Purdue and go, oh, well, they're shitty. You know, they suck. They haven't won. They probably haven't had a winning record since Drew Brees was there. Those are the spots you want to look for, you know, because just because Louisville's a good team and they may wind up being a great team and they may challenge Florida State and Clemson for the ACC, you know, who knows if they're going to be off to that hot of a start. They're facing a team with a new head coach. It's hard to game plan for that. There's not a whole lot of film. You have to watch film with Western Kentucky's players. That's not a great indication of what Purdue might do. So that's one of those spots where I think there is some value. It's an ugly dog. Might be a tough game for you to watch. But I think that's a pretty good spot here this week as well.
1: Those are all great spots. I like your your view on some of those dogs there, especially, well, A, some of them are neutral sites, but also when they're home dogs, it really gets my attention. But Purdue as a team last year, I'm a Big Ten guy. They were always – they were never good, but they were always there to hang around, especially in those 20-plus point Underdog roles that they 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 keep you in the game. You'd be surprised uh, in the end result. So it's always interesting with them. Let's take a look at some of the big games this week in top twenty-five actions. It's great we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday with five days of college football to kick this off. And one of the big ones is we have Michigan at against Florida. You mentioned Florida has almost half their team suspended. It feels like their stud wide receivers out. Um, People, you know, they're using the revenge factor in this. There's all kinds of things. Florida's supposed to be really, really improved this year. What's your thoughts on this game? The line's uh Florida plus four and a half at the moment.
2: Yeah, this this one's a tough one for me because, actually, I have this game line, I believe, pick them. I'm going to double-check my numbers here. Uh, actually, no, I've got Florida minus two and a half in this game. So I, I think pretty highly of Florida. I also don't think very highly of Michigan. And, you know, for those that uh, will end up listening to Bang the Book Radio and for those that know me on Twitter. I am an Ohio State fan, and it's not because I don't like Michigan that I have them power rated low. I just don't really think a whole lot of their team. They don't have, excuse me, a whole lot coming back on the defensive side of the ball. Now, the problem of course with this game is that Florida has 10 players suspended, starting running back, starting wide receiver. They lack skill position players. They have Felipe Franks who's starting. He's never started a college game in his career. So I like Florida from a numbers standpoint, but from a situational standpoint with everything that's going on, It is a very, very hard spot to take them. This is a neutral site game down in Arlington, Texas. So, you know, I don't know what the crowd will look like for both sides. I presume Michigan will will travel well. I assume Florida will travel pretty well. Uh, But, you know, if, if all things were created equal, if this was a regular game the way it's supposed to be, I'd be all over Florida from a numbers standpoint in this spot. But because there's so much uncertainty, I may take a piece of plus five or plus four and a half. But it won't be anything significant just because I don't really know what I'm going to see from the Gators now.
1: Yeah, I'm 100% with you. A as A, I'm a Badger guy, so at least we don't see each other until you beat us in the title game, usually. <laughs> um, but I'm not big on Michigan at all this year. I, I, I wasn't big on them that much last year. They, they did perform well, but they never have a quarterback, at least they haven't had one in a long time. And it, just, it seems to kill them in games that matter the most, in games like this. Uh, Florida, who I do like a lot, it is, like you said, very, very difficult when you don't know what they're going to bring to the table. But I feel it's a game, if you're going to bet it, I'd take Florida with the points. Maybe it even goes up higher with more suspensions that come out. Their defense still seems very, very solid to me, and they have, they have improved quarterback play. It's going to be an interesting game. It's one you might want to sit out, like you're saying, but at the same time, Florida would be the one calling my name if I were to do anything.
2: Next up, let's take you. Well, England. actually, let me, let me expand a little bit more here on this Michigan-Florida game because when, when I say I'm not too high on Michigan, I will say I have them 20th in my power ratings, 1 through 130. So they're still easily a top 25 team for me. They're actually a top 20 team for me. Uh, but, you know, that's still a little bit lower than where some people have them. I think because Harbaugh can talk a pretty big game, you, know, you kind of get into this situation where people are like, oh, you know, he's he's such a motivator and, oh, he's had these recruiting classes and this and that and you know i I still need him to show me something you know he's he's had good talent while he's been there, both from you know the the previous coaching staff and then from what he's brought in and They haven't shown me enough yet, mm-hmm. so you know I, I do have Michigan as a top twenty team, so I mean it's not like I think that they're going to be you know terrible and go seven and five or something like that. It's just that relative to Florida you know i I don't really have them at that point yet and, and one other thing you mentioned there with Florida's defense being really good. That's another thing to keep in mind as well. I mean, this is a total that opened 45 at Pinnacle. It's come down to 43 and a half. Uh, it opened, actually, so like it opened 46 at Bookmaker. Uh, it's come down to 43. Opened 48 at BetOnline. It's come down to 43 and a half. So the expectation here in this game is for it to be low scoring. And when you get a situation like that and you're getting five points on Florida, you're getting the key number of three, you're getting the key number of four, what key numbers mean is basically when you think about scoring combinations in football ones, twos, threes, and sixes and sevens, you know, three and four are fall numbers, so to speak, where games will finish, you know, by a three point spread or a four point spread. You're getting both of those numbers now with Florida in a game that's expected to be really low scoring. So there's some value in that as well. Uh, even if Florida's not going to have a great offensive showing, which it certainly looks like will be the case, you know, their defense is going to keep them in this ball game. So that's one of those spots where maybe you look to take the points, almost as sort of a, a correlation to the to the total on the game.
1: Yes, that that's something I look at a lot when I'm trying to decide on those tighter matchups, or even a big dog like your you know your Purdue games, or there's the Indiana Ohio State game, stuff like that. Or if the spread's really big but the total's low, you got to think, okay, are they going to get shut out? Is you know the favorite going to run? You got to kind of think of that angle too, and that might add more value to. Your uh, your dog play or whatever you're looking at there, whichever side you're on. Uh, let's go to New Orleans. We got Florida State versus Alabama, two top five programs. This has the potential to be really good. Florida State coming off a very very down year. They've lost Dalvin Cook, but they still have plenty of weapons. Returning a uh, Francois who's a very very good quarterback, and then Alabama. They just their first two to three strings could probably go get drafted if they played every day. So. What are you looking at in this game? I believe that Bama is a seven-point favorite right now.
2: Yeah, Bama is a seven-point favorite. Just to make a, a small correction, there, this game's in Atlanta at Mercedes-Benz oh. Stadium because uh-huh. New Orleans is Mercedes-Benz Superdome. Which, don't worry, that's something that I'm going to screw up a couple times this year. Just like, just like I'm going to continue to call the Chargers the San Diego Chargers until probably the start of November when I finally realize that they're actually in LA. I'm um, with you. But. You know, this is one of those spots here where you know, both fan bases should travel well. It's not that big of a hike for both of these teams to go to Atlanta. Um, and, you know, this is one of those games that's really hard for me because from a numbers standpoint, if I can catch a 7.5 on Florida State, and there are a couple out there, there's seven and a half at Five Dimes and Bovada. Bovada, of course, you know, a very public book. So they're already taking money on Alabama, who Alabama is the most scrutinized team in the country. You know Everybody watches their games. Everybody knows everything about this team. And they went 10-4-1 against the spread last year. And you couldn't set lines high enough to keep people from betting on this team. So this is a number that did open, I think, four and a half or five. Maybe it opened four over the summer in the games of the year lines. Got pushed up to seven where it's currently sitting. My personal power ratings number on this game is five. So if I got to a seven and a half, my numbers would tell me to take it. But I have very little interest in going up against Alabama. I mean, they're the best team in the country. I have a fairly large margin. I have them a three-and-a-half-point favorite over Ohio State on a neutral, who's my second highest power-rated team. So they're three-and-a-half points better than anybody else in the country as far as I'm concerned. You got Jalen Hurts, who's a dimension that Alabama's never really had at quarterback. You know, they've had the Greg McElroy types and A.J. McCarron types, guys that are slightly better than game managers. Now they have this dynamic playmaker at quarterback. Who, who can stop them? How can anybody stop them? They stopped themselves last year in the national championship game because Lane Kiffin didn't take the shackles off of Jalen Hurts until pretty much the fourth quarter. So, I mean, I, I can't go against Alabama in this spot. I think Florida State plays with them. But what's really a disappointment about this game is with the way that the college football playoff is set up now, while this game seems like it means a ton, and it probably means a ton to both teams just to say, you know, we're playing a top five game in week one, if Alabama loses this game, they're an instant play-on team to win the national championship because they have to run the table in the SEC, and they're back in there. It doesn't matter if they lose a the game. They could even probably lose two. If they win the SEC, they're in the college football playoff. Florida State, same thing. If they lose this game but run the ACC table, they're in the college football playoff too. So this is a game to watch. It's a game to enjoy. It's a game with a lot of Sunday talent. I know I called this one a scout's wet dream in my preview over at bangthebook.com because – just a lot of four- and five-star guys that are going to play in the NFL. But probably not a game to bet on unless you feel like you've got a really strong edge somewhere.
1: Yeah, I, I am so torn on this game. You look it, Almost any time you can get Florida State at a plus seven in a matchup, you're giddy. But like you said, it's Alabama. I don't know how many times in the last, say, three, four, five years – you bet an Alabama game, and you're covering until like three minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And I remember I have visions of Derrick Henry busting a 70-yard run or something like it's just they always find a way. Like you said, they're 10-4, and I believe one or two you said last year. It's ridiculous what those teams do, and it goes a long ways to showing how deep they are, how disciplined they always are. They Saban has them playing until the end, unlike some other teams in the country. The way I look at playing teams like Bama, and I don't know, maybe you give an opinion on this – If you can get like a plus four first half of Florida State, you go in those angles because it seems like a Bama team, especially in the past for most of their early games, and this is the thing with college football is It, like you said, sample size isn't there because they change players so often. They seem to start kind of slow and they bust out in the second half. That just seems like something they usually do as long as, you know, their opposition is not turning the ball over to them. That's an angle I might look at. Otherwise, like you said, it should be a great game to watch. But betting in it is going to be very, very nerve-wracking.
2: No, it, it definitely is. And, and what you're talking about, what you're referring to with half betting, it's called derivative betting, and we talk a lot about it on the show. And, you know, a lot of times in, in certain sports, it's a better way to go about it. It's basically like playing a first five in Major League Baseball where you could take that volatility of the bullpen out of the equation. That's something that I look to do and something I tell my readers about all the time, You know, just because that is where you don't quite know what's going to happen in the first quarter of this game and in the first half of this game, the first 10 to 15 plays from both teams are going to be scripted. They're not going to go off script. They're going to do exactly what they want to do. They're going to do stuff that they're comfortable with because, you know, I just talked about how this game probably isn't all that big from a you know college football playoff standpoint, but it's a big game for both of these teams. It's the opener to the season. You're going to have a lot of nerves. You're going to have a lot of kids that are going to be jumping out of their skin to play this one. So you want to stick to your bread and butter. You want to stick to what you know works. And that can be kind of vanilla in nature. So I think taking the dog in the first half is, is certainly a possibility, a first quarter under, something like that. Because I'm also really wondering, and, and this is another reason why, you know, I can't really go against Alabama in this spot. I don't know what offensive coordinator Brian Dable is going to do with this team. You know, he was an NFL guy. Is he going to try to play pro style with this dual threat quarterback and Jalen Hurts? Is he going to just give Jalen Hurts free reign to do whatever the hell he wants to do? I mean, this is a guy that's worked with Tom Brady for 15 years. You know, I, I don't know how he's going to transition over to the college game. And I don't like uncertainty like that. I mean, obviously every game, every bet that you make has a ton of uncertainty. Like you talked about it, you can't really predict baseball, but what you try to do every time you lock in a bet is you try to eliminate as much potential variance as possible. That's why you look at the matchups, why you look at the splits in baseball, all that type of stuff. You kind of try and visualize the way that you think that this game is going to play out. And when I get an NFL assistant or an NFL coordinator coming down to the college game with the college game being in the state that it's in. There's a lot of variance in that. I just don't know how it's going to play out. And does that help Florida state? Maybe does it help Alabama? Maybe because they know what they're going to do and Florida state. Doesn't it's just one of those spots where you, know, you want action on it because it's a huge game because you're going to sit down, drink a six pack and watch it. But you know, if you are serious about betting and serious about making money at, on it, as opposed to just having action out there, probably not the week one game that you want to bet.
1: Yeah, you don't have to bet every game, and um, I was I was thinking when you, we first started talking about this game, I wish this was week two so we had one game with these teams to see what they had. It make it so much never clearer, but so much better to analyze. I felt um, the last game we'll check out is on Sunday uh, in DC, West Virginia versus Virginia Tech should be a Interesting game because both teams have a lot of questions. You know, Virginia Tech coming second year now with, I believe, Fuentes. And you got West Virginia. who really disappointed last year and looks to be bouncing back. West Virginia is a four-point dog in this matchup. What is your opinion on this one?
2: Uh, This is one where my line is pretty much right in line with what the oddsmakers have. I make Virginia Tech a five-point favorite here in this spot. And it's tough because this is another one of those games where you've got a lot of potential variants because you've got two brand-new quarterbacks. Uh, you know, you got Will Greer at West Virginia, who was originally a Florida recruit. So you know, you have talent, you have upside, but does he maximize it? Is this the right, <clears throat> the right fit for him? Does he fit well in Dana Holgerson's offense? You don't really know those things until you actually see him out there on the field in real game conditions. I mean, there's only so much you can get from spring games or scrimmages or fall camps or anything like that. On the other hand, you've got Virginia Tech, who's also going to be breaking in a new quarterback. Gerard Evans left early for the NFL, accounted for 41 total touchdowns last year. Kind of surprising that he left early, went undrafted, so maybe he'd like to rethink that one. Uh, but you've got a redshirt freshman quarterback here who's never thrown a pass in a Division One college football game. So I don't know. I don't know what to expect from this game. I do know that Virginia Tech's defense will probably be good because Bud Foster is one of the best coordinators in the country. So if I had to do anything with this game, I would look Virginia Tech. I would lay the four. But, you know, again, this is one of those where you've got a couple of programs that tend to overachieve. I mean, West Virginia doesn't get the best talent. It's up there in Morgantown. It's a tough place to get to. They've changed conferences here recently, yet they still find ways to get to bowl games and play pretty well. Virginia Tech, you know, it's not a flashy brand of football and offense. Tough for them to get a lot of athletes. What they, what they do, they do really well. They've churned out tons of NFL defensive backs. So you, know, you have two teams here that are, are kind of chronic overachievers. And, you know, it's kind of tough when teams like that play each other because you kind of look at both teams as having a high floor but a relatively low ceiling. So I would take Virginia Tech in this one. I've got a little bit stronger of an opinion on the other Sunday game, which is Texas A&M and UCLA. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that this West Virginia game and Virginia Tech game is – one of the things that you want to do if you do want to handicap college football is watch these games and try to pick up on some things. Don't take too much out of them. Don't overreact if Virginia Tech blows out West Virginia somehow or something like that. Don't sit there and say, oh, I'm going to play Virginia Tech to win the college football playoff now. You don't want to do that, but look for little things. You know, is, is Virginia Tech able to throw the football here? Well, West Virginia is replacing its entire secondary, basically. So if Virginia Tech can throw the football here, There are other teams that they'll be able to throw the football on because they're also replacing guys. If they can't throw the football here, well that's a red flag for when they face better defenses. So you can pick up on stuff like that and, you know, still have some vested interest, even though you don't have money on the line.
1: Yeah. I'm really curious to see how Virginia tech plays. Now Year two of a new offense, maybe opens up quite a bit from Beamer ball of the old. So it it could be a, a completely new wrinkle in the Virginia tech deal. We haven't seen in a long time. Um, you mentioned that Sunday game, so I'm going to ask you Texas A&M UCLA. What's your strong opinion
2: there? I, I've got this game line pick 'em even on the road at UCLA, so I do like Texas A&M in this spot. Part of it is because I don't like Jim Mora Jr. I think Jim Mora Jr. has squandered a lot of really premier talent out there at UCLA, and that just doesn't sit well with me. You know, when when you're given really good ingredients and you make a dish that nobody wants to eat, you probably shouldn't be a chef. When you get a lot of good ingredients and you can't reach the expectations you're supposed to get as a head coach, that just doesn't sit well with me. I'm just not a fan of Mora. I don't know if he'll have his team ready to go here for this one. Uh, And also, UCLA's offensive line is not good. Now, they're very, very lucky that Deshaun Hall and and some guy that listeners may have heard of, Miles Garrett, are both gone from Texas A&M because those two guys just wreaked havoc last year. Uh, So that's a benefit for UCLA. But you're getting Texas A&M catching three and a half, I think it's a close game because I don't see UCLA, despite all the talent they have, as a team that can go out and and comfortably beat somebody. You know I mean? What's the health of Josh Rosen? Is Josh Rosen willing to hang in there and take a hit when he's got an NFL payday coming in April? I don't know. I doubt it. So is he kind of bailing out, throwing off his back foot? Because to me, scouts have seen what they need to see from him. You know, and I think that they also understand because people always – You know, give guys like Jadavian Clowney flack or give guys like Joey Bosa flack, you know, saying that they're not really playing that hard. They know what's going to happen. They know that they're first or second overall picks. Josh Rosen knows he's a first-round pick, and he's not going to compromise that to get his ass kicked behind a bad offensive line. So UCLA is a team that I'm low on overall for this season. I think that, you know, my line here for this game kind of showcases that.
1: I don't disagree with any of that. I'm not high on UCLA at all. Rosen... I'm not high on him, but if if it's the angle you're mentioning, I totally understand it. That makes a a ton of sense. and A lot of it could be that that offensive line just hasn't allowed him to be the guy I thought he'd be. So there's a lot to that. Let's uh, look ahead to any futures, college football futures, that you uh, circled to start the season or that you're looking at.
2: There are a few. Uh, I really like the Nebraska season win total under. Uh, Last I saw, I think it was seven. Uh, I actually have them with less than six wins in my in my preseason preview. So what I basically do for my preview is that I put together my power ratings and then I put together the lines for each game that they'll play here this season. Well, each line correlates to an implied probability. So I put that in there, and then that's the it, that's the number of expected wins or projected wins that they have in that game. So you know when you look at something like that, for example, uh, when you look at say a team's a seven point favorite. Well, they're expected to win that game 70% of the time. So if I've got a line projected to be a seven-point favorite, that counts as .7 wins in what I'm doing before the season. So for Nebraska, I wound up having them below six wins. on uh, Their season win total was seven. I think it was juice to the under, like minus 130, minus 135, something like that. Uh, so that was one that I was looking at. In fact, I've got their number uh, against Arkansas State this week down around 10 or 11. So that's a game that I'll be looking to play here. As we get closer to kickoff, hopefully I get a little bit of public money on Nebraska to bump that line back up. Uh, But Nebraska is not a team I'm high on. I mentioned Middle Tennessee State already is a team that I really like quite a bit. Uh, There are some other things you can look at too. I mean, I think JT Barrett to win the Heisman Trophy around 12 to 1, I think it is, has some value. Uh, New offensive coordinator in Kevin Wilson. I think that this is a spot where you know he's going to play more to JT Barrett's strengths than what the previous coaching staff did. He's also got a new uh, quarterbacks coach this year, I believe his name is Ryan Day. So those are two things I think will really help JT Barrett. Also, he doesn't have Curtis Samuel, so someone's going to have to get those yards. Mike Weber's a good back, but somebody's going to have to get those yards, kind of running outside the tackles. Barrett's probably going to be that guy. And also, you know, you don't really have to worry about keeping him healthy for the future. I know that that sounds terrible, uh, but you know, he's a guy that's out of eligibility at the end of the year. So if he takes a lot of shots. Odds are Urban Meyer and them are are okay with that as long as he's gaining yards and, you know, he's out there every Saturday. So I think JT Barrett to win the Heisman's a decent bet. And like I said, if something happens this week where Alabama loses, they are an immediate play-on team to win the college football playoff. They'd probably go from three or four to one to maybe five and a half or six to one, something like that. That is an absolute play-on spot because they should be there in that top four. And also, they're Alabama. This is something I talked about with Ohio State last year, and people were like, well, Ohio State lost to Penn State. How can they possibly go to the college football playoff? Because they're Ohio State. They're the biggest draw in college football. You either love them or you hate them. There's no in-between. Their fan base travels exceptionally well. It was about money. Ohio State got in the college football playoff because of money. They were a good team, but as we saw with their 31-0 loss to Clemson, maybe they shouldn't have been there. But they got there because of money. If Alabama has a chance to go as the huge draw that they are, they're getting in. So I think at that point, Alabama's a really good play there uh, from a future standpoint. I think you could also, if you wanted to, maybe throw some long-shot money on a team like Oregon, a uh, new head coach and Willie Taggart. You know, If Washington slides back a little bit, if Oregon could beat Stanford head-to-head, maybe the Ducks are a team that finds a way to get in there because everyone's looking at USC, and I like USC. I like Sam Darnold. But if you can find a future out there in the Pac-12 with somebody other than USC, because whoever wins the Pac-12 with you know USC, Stanford, uh, Oregon, Washington, I mean, those are four top 20 teams for me. Washington State's number 25, my power ratings, UCLA's 27. You've got six top 30 teams out there. Whoever wins that division probably should get in the – college, or whoever wins that conference should probably get in the college football playoff. So I think if you pick one of those Pac-12 teams, specifically one from the north, uh, you, know, you should be able to have a hedging opportunity in the Pac-12 title game. And then if they beat USC, they should get into the final four.
1: No, I completely agree. When I was picking my Pac twelve winners for the year, it's uh, it's a bit of a mess. There's a lot of teams that can definitely you could see making that run, like you're saying, that, that could compete for the Pac twelve, let alone a good spot in the playoffs. Okay, I could talk college football with you all day long, but let's talk a little NFL before we send it home. NFL week one is next starts next Thursday as we got the final preseason games tomorrow night. You are in the Super
2: Contest. How many years have you been running in that Super Contest? Uh, this will be the third year in the Super Contest, but this will be the first year that I'm doing it by myself, and and I'm really excited about that. No offense to my to my previous partner, but it can be a real challenge to get on the same page. And, and the problem with the Super Contest is that the margin for error is extremely small. So for those that don't know, it's a contest out at the Westgate Superbook in Las Vegas. You put up your $1,500 entry fee to get in. Uh, then you pick five games against the spread every week in the NFL, and the lines come out on Wednesday night and they don't move. So they are stale lines, which means that if something happens in practice on Thursday, let's say, you know, Tom Brady gets hurt and the Patriots are, you know, seven-point favorite, and the line goes down to three and a half in the betting market, doesn't matter for the Super Contest. They're still a seven-point favorite. So there are a lot of different wrinkles to that, but. You know, doing it by myself this year to the point where I don't have to be on the same page because oftentimes what happened is we both had two plays we were really strong about and then we both kind of pushed for those. And that would be four of our five plays. Then we'd haggle over the other one. There's just too much compromise, too much give and take. So I'm happy this year to be able to do it myself, be able to pour over the numbers, use what I think works for me. Uh, So, you know, I'm certainly hoping for, uh, for better results this year. I know last year, I think we were around 46 or 47%, uh, which is no good, but, In this super contest, I mean, you're talking about having to go 68 to 70% winners over 85 picks. So the margin for error is so small in this tournament. I I compare it a lot to the World Series of Poker main event where everybody has a shot to win it, but you got to win all your coin flips. You got to run really good in those hands where you're 55-45 or 60-40, something like that. The super contest is basically the same way. Uh, So I like the challenge, you know, it's a a great thing for us to talk about on the shows over at BangBook.com. I write a preview article on Saturdays. It shows the pick counts and what we've got. I write a recap article on Tuesdays to talk about how we did how some other notable people in the contest did. Uh, I love it. I I think it's a fascinating thing to do. But again, you've got to be really good over 17 weeks picking the NFL, which is not easy.
1: It, it's an awesome format. Uh, if you go on Twitter, there's a bunch of different people running Twitter super contests. It's for the most part, the same format. They stick the same lines and everything. It, it's awesome. Your payday is great, and like you said, it's very difficult. I believe the one I was in last year, I finished at like fifty-seven or fifty-eight percent. I wasn't even in the top ten. It was. It wasn't even close. It, you have to be flawless, like you said. It's it's crazy to do, but it's a lot of fun. Um, a lot of fun and. If people obviously don't want to pay $1,500, I recommend coming around. I have one that I don't run it, but I have someone that runs it. It's like 20 bucks to get in. It's super cheap, and it's fun for the whole season. Just stuff to check out and um, to get in on, on that. Uh, how contrarian do you try to get in that tournament? Or do you just go for the five best ones you like?
2: I mean, really for me what it is is – you know, at the start, you you just want to pick winners because the last thing that you want to have to do in this contest is play catch up. It is extremely difficult uh to play catch up. And I actually just looked it up. Last year's winner was sixty-five point nine percent. So fifty-four, twenty-eight, and three. Second place was sixty-four point six percent. Tie for third at sixty-three point one percent. So again, if you go three and two every week, you don't even make the money in this thing. That's how challenging and how difficult it actually is to you know, cash in the super contest, but you know the, the NFL is such a different animal to college football. And, and truthfully, I prefer betting college football. Uh, I just think that there's so many more edges to be gained, and that's obvious because there's 130 teams, and people don't know as much about the Sun Belt or the Mac or Conference USA as they know about the SEC or the ACC. Everybody knows everybody in the 32 team NFL. So lines are tighter, markets are tighter, you know, all this type of stuff. Uh, contrarian is is oftentimes the way to go in the NFL. You know, a lot of times you'll see, and you know, I I don't know if you were following it uh, last year or two years ago, Bubba, but it seemed like week after week, sharp players were betting the Browns. And week after week, the Browns were failing to cover just for one reason or another. You know, a quarterback would get hurt. They'd turn the ball over on the 50 with three minutes left and give up a garbage time touchdown. Whatever it was, it kept happening to them. But sharp players kept going in on the Browns. and, And that's the thing with the NFL is a lot of times, you're left with bets that you don't want to make. You're left with very, very ugly teams to back, and it's hard. It's challenging. It sucks, but that's uh, more often than not where the value is in the NFL. So, you know, for me in the NFL, it's all about the number. It is all about being on the plus side of a key number, being on the minus side of a key number. If you're taking a favorite, uh, you know, the the number just means so much because, and I look at my one through one thirty for college football, and and I can bring this up right now, but I've got Alabama as a ninety seven point five. My lowest rated team is Texas State at forty nine point five. So I would have Alabama a forty eight point favorite over Texas State. When you look at one through thirty two in the NFL, like the Patriots and the Jets, probably a fourteen point gap. So the gaps are just so much smaller. You know, the edges you can get are so much smaller. So for me, it's it's really all about looking at the number. It's about you know, catching Buffalo at a, at a six as opposed to a seven or about, you know, catching, uh, you know, Indianapolis at, you know, two and a half instead of three, whatever the case may be. You know, that's what's really important is, is making sure that you get the right side of the number. But this is one thing, something that you mentioned uh, a little bit before we started recording here, you know, about teasers and parlays and, and things of that sort. People love to play parlays. You know, they're kind of lottery tickets where you, you put in your investment and then you, know, you see how it goes from there. I will say this. I think teasers are very profitable in the NFL, much more so than college football. You take a line, for example, like um, you know, right now you've got Arizona. Uh, not Arizona. Uh, the lines are kind of all over the place here. But let's say you've got you know the Giants at Dallas, and this number is three and a half at some places. You do a six-point teaser on the Giants. You get them up to plus nine and a half. You've got four, six, seven, all as key numbers, and you're on the right side of those. So if the Giants lose that game by six, seven points, you know, you still have uh, you know, you, you have a winner there on your teaser. So that's something you can look at for the NFL that I think is really good. But that's another one where you know it's all about the number. It's about if you're teasing something, you want to cross some of those really important numbers three, four, six, and seven. If you can do that, if you can take a two and a half up to eight and a half, for example, get three, get four, get six, get seven, those are really plus EV opportunities for you. So that's something I do like to do in the NFL. And, and to me, honestly, you know, outside of the super contest, which where I have to pick individual games, I think teasers are the way to go in the NFL.
1: Yeah. It's funny. Cause years ago, everyone was way, way against teasers. It's the you know easy way out this side or the other, but it's so true. I have a buddy of mine that he texts me every Sunday morning at about nine 30 Pacific time and goes, Hey, this is the 14 teaser I'm putting out. And it's like, you know, it pays out a pretty good amount. And I look at them like that's not a bad play, actually, because those actually, you know, you cross that number, you do that. It all lines up to be very interesting, and it makes way more sense because in college, you know, teams don't care about running the score up. In the NFL, they get up double digits, you know, late fourth quarter, they're running the clock out. There, there's so many different factors that come into play in the NFL than in the pros, which make it very interesting. Um, you mentioned the Browns. I do rem- remember when everybody was betting the Browns over and over and over again. Those same guys love to bet double-digit dogs regardless of who they are. If you, they see double digits, they're pounding it. If they see two touchdown dogs, they're pounding it even harder. What are your thoughts on that? Is it strictly just, you know, it's power rankings all over again, even though you said your worst power
2: ranking's 14. So what are your thoughts? I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to blow somebody out in the NFL, but at the same time, I mean, you can already kind of see it this year. With Buffalo and Cleveland and some of the trades that they're making – they appear to be positioning themselves to tank preemptively. I mean, the Browns at least have an excuse because they have a very unique front office. They picked up Paul De Podesta, who everybody knows, obviously, uh, from Moneyball and that type of thing. They're going heavy into the analytics, which means that they want to look at all of the young players that they have. Starting Deshaun Kaiser in week one against the Pittsburgh Steelers, that's beaten the Browns, I think, all but two or three times since the Browns came back in '99. And they're starting a rookie out of Notre Dame at quarterback. And you know, I mean, it's just it's the nature of the beast. I mean, there's a 10 out there right now at five dimes. It's plus ten minus one thirty, of course. Uh, but you know, I mean, for me, like I said, it's it's just all value in the number. And and if I feel like, you know, if I can catch a 13 and a half on a team that should blow somebody out, it's better than taking 14. It's better than taking 14 and a half. You know, I, I don't I don't want to limit myself at all in the NFL because the edges are so small that I feel like I can't cross off any game. You know, in college football, there are a lot of games I can cross off. For example, you know, UTEP in Oklahoma this week, uh, Oklahoma's a 43 point favorite. I have no interest in playing that game at all. I, I just, there's no reason for me to play that game. But in the NFL, I don't want to cross off any game because there could be an angle that I'm missing in that game. There could be, you know, a way that that game comes into a playable range. And then all of a sudden I'm scrambling to go back and look up information for it. Well, by that point, the line I'm looking at has moved. So, you know, I think you just have to keep a really open mind in the NFL and you have to realize that, you know, I'll say this. A lot of people I talk to, a lot of professional handicappers I talk to, like to say that they bet numbers, they don't bet teams. And to an extent, I agree with that point, and obviously they're far more successful than me. So, you know, maybe I should just shut my mouth about it, but, you know, I also have to like the team that I'm betting in Major League Baseball. I have to like the team that I'm betting in college football. In the NFL, I totally agree with betting numbers and not teams. You know, the, the teams almost don't matter. It's whatever the number is that matters. You know, it's not that way in baseball for me. It's not that way in college football. It's not that way in the NHL, uh, where I've had some success over the last couple of years. You know, it's just it, every sport has to be treated as a different entity. And in the NFL, I will never cross off a game and say. You know, I don't want to play this. Even if it's a game, I mean, look at all the starting quarterbacks we have. You you got Tom Savage and Deshaun Kaiser and I don't know know if Blake Bortles or Chad Henney's starting for Jacksonville. I don't really care. They're interchangeable to me. But there's a lot of quarterbacks out there that are terrible. And, you know, there are a lot of people that are going to cross off this game and go, well, I don't like either one of these guys, so I'm not going to look at this game. You can't do that. You cannot do that in the NFL market with only, you know, 16 games at most each week. So you have to keep an open mind, and and you know, again, uh, the NFL market is is just really tough, and and that's why you know, you don't want to uh, you don't want to limit the sample size of games you have available just because you don't like this quarterback, you don't like that quarterback, something like that. I also think situational angles are really important in the NFL. You know, if I'm if I'm getting a double digit favorite against a team with long travel, back to back weeks, that's something where I won't be afraid to lay the points. You know, but if it's a team that's at home as a double digit dog and, you know, they've played back-to-back home games, then, yeah, that's a spot where I probably will stay away from it.
1: Okay. that You just answered my my final question. That is perfect. I was looking at that, the angles of travel, you know, West Coast, East Coast, early start times, all that kind of stuff. Short so, weeks, yeah. yep. Yep, there's a lot to that. Um, well, heck, we covered a lot right here. This was outstanding. Um, started with baseball, ended with NFL, a lot of college football in the middle. Um Anything else you wanted to bring up today or um, just have them check you out at bangthebook.com? Can you give them a little idea of how often you guys are on, what you you kind of do over there?
2: Yeah, sure. I can talk about that. And then there is a question that I want to uh, throw your way here. Uh, but over at bangthebook.com, we record our radio show. I like to call it a radio show because I think it sounds more formal than a podcast, but that's just probably me being anal about it. Uh, we record every weekday live from 11 a.m. Eastern to 12 p.m. Eastern. Generally speaking, we tend to go over that. But you can get the full shows uh, immediately after I stop recording pretty much over at bangthebook.com. I write a recap article. It's time-stamped, so if you're in a time crunch, you, know, you can go through and, and only listen to what you want to listen to. I also cut it into segments as well. You can find those uh, on our speaker page, which is titled Bang the Book Radio. Uh, but, yeah, we're on every weekday, and you know I've got a wide variety of really good handicappers. Some are numbers guys. Some are situational guys. You get a really broad perspective. Of of the different ways to handicap, because there are a lot of different ways. I talked about power ratings. I like to use them, but I like to incorporate the situational angles and, and all that type of stuff. Uh, but we, I, I'm really proud of the show that we have. You know, we have guys that sell picks on there, and I give them a chance to you know promote what they're selling or talk about you know what their results have been recently at the end of the segments. But ultimately, my goal with this show and what makes it different from other shows out there is that I want to educate and inform the listeners. We're not going to sit there and rattle off you know, free play after free play. We're going to talk about how to break down these games. We're going to talk about how we got to our personal spreads from our power ratings. We're going to talk about those situational angles. That stuff is important to me. you know. And and these guys that come on the show understand that, and I've made that clear to them. So it's not a sales pitch. It's not a, hey, buy my game of the year kind of thing. I don't do that bullshit. I, I have no interest in that. I just want to share good information with the listeners. I want to educate the listeners. I basically want them to have the experience that I was lucky to get coming up in this industry by being around the right people and, and talking to the right people. And that's how I was able to come up. And, and I want to pass that along, sort of pass that forward to you know what I hope is a, a new crop of handicappers out there. But we've got a lot of great content at the site as well. Like I said, I do my power ratings every week. Uh, we've got a guy that's a science teacher, an amateur handicapper that puts together some really great NFL power ratings. A very interesting process. I actually posted an article of his uh, today here, or actually yesterday on Tuesday, about how he calculates his home field advantages. We got a lot of good stuff. Lots of game previews and all that, of course, but you know, we're kind of trying to focus on the next level analysis. Handicapping 201 and 301, as I like to call it. So uh, if you get a chance to check out the website, please make sure that you do, and, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Skating Tripods. But, Bob, but the question I had for you is this. I, I know that you're you know, big into Daily Fantasy, I know that we talked uh, before we started recording here about, you know, your betting and, and the past that you have with it. One of the big things here, you know, that's been talked about over the last few years is the legalization of sports betting. And a lot of people look at Daily Fantasy and say, you know, how can this be legal? How can this be a game of skill? Whereas, you know, betting is not. People consider betting to be a game of luck. So I'm just kind of curious to get your overall thoughts on, on the industry and, you know, if if maybe daily fantasy is kind of that, so to speak, gateway drug into, into sports betting being legalized, what do you think?
1: That's a great way to put it. I could definitely see the angle to call it the gateway drug to sports betting because I feel, you know, I, I don't sugarcoat it. It is, I, I say it on my, my baseball podcast every day. It's how much do you want to gamble on your lineup? So that's what you're doing. You're gambling on your plays. You can be safe. You can take a higher risk. You're gambling regardless. And, and to me, that's what it is. The fact that it is legal in so many states, but still isn't, is interesting to me. But it definitely, to me, is the gateway drug. You've seen more st- states are trying to approach uh, legalized sports gambling. As long as these things are regulated, I don't see it being an issue at all. As long as you know, the government doesn't get too greedy, which is probably asking way, way too much. But cause that, that's what you've seen with this whole DraftKings FanDuel thing. Like in New York, it was just because they wanted their, their cut, basically. It's like a mafia deal back in the day. They just want their piece of the action. Um, but there's no reason this can't happen. There's no reason why DFS can't grow more. There's no reason why, you know, season fantasy. People have been wagering on that for years and no one cared. But uh, now that it's kind of more out in the open, people see it. And like I said, they want their cut, so now they're making rules. I really see it as a great chance for the the sports wagering industry, you could say. The question is, is, I don't know how much, if the money's there, everybody will do it. It just makes me wonder how much longer it's going to take because I thought we'd already see more progress by now. You obviously have way more into it and pay way more attention to it, I'd imagine, but it has to be a gateway drug to it. and. What, what do you think? How soon do you think we'll actually see, you know, legalized sports wagering in, in more states?
2: I mean, I, I think it probably takes somewhere in the, in the realm of five to seven years. I mean, for one thing, you have to get to a point where it becomes some sort of priority, whether it's on a state level or on a federal level, for legislators to actually sit down and talk about it. And, you know, so far, I mean, we've gotten to that point in New Jersey, but we haven't really seen that a whole lot on a national landscape or on a state-by-state landscape. What's really interesting is uh, South Carolina, my wife's from South Carolina and you know, it's one of the few States in this country that does not have casinos, but they've talked about introducing sports betting, which is interesting to me because they don't have a pro team in South Carolina. So maybe they're sort of looking at that as, you know, something that could be a good revenue stream and something that would, you know, avoid hurting the integrity of the game or, you know, whatever that bullshit company line is about that. Um, But Like you said, I mean, as long as it's done correctly and and you have operators willing to do it. I mean, William Hill already operates, you know, a lot of sports books in Vegas. They operate a lot in Europe. I know that they would be very excited to put kiosks around the country in bars or, you know, do whatever they need to do in order to, uh, you know, oversee and regulate and, and pay attention to this, to this whole, you know, industry that's hopefully going to be growing here in the near future. But you've finally got pro teams in Vegas. You've got the commissioners starting to get on board. I don't know if the NCAA will ever get on board, but you know, they don't make a whole lot of sense with anything anyway. So I think that really helps. The the greatest opposition to this has been the sports leagues. And when the greatest opposition is the amount of money and power that's wielded by those groups, you know, you're not going to get to the table. But now that they're coming around on it, and and look, I mean, even from the time I started with Bang the Book, I actually started doing a college football podcast in 2013, over the last four or five years. You see the the spreads on the bottom line on ESPN. You've had shows on Fox Sports 1 that have been strictly dedicated to gambling. Every app that you download now has the spread in it. You know, the networks know. They understand. And the leagues are starting to understand. Now you just have to get to a point where, you know, you you, you start talking numbers, you get politicians to the table and say, hey, this is going to be your cut on a state-by-state level. Once that happens, I it'll be a... Not a relatively quick process, but it should be something that happens. I would say five to ten, five to seven, five to ten years, something like that.
1: Yeah, that that's exactly what I was thinking. Now that the leagues, like you've you've mentioned, the NBA's come out and, and you know they're embracing fantasy and gambling. You have uh, a team, an NHL team in Vegas, like you're saying. The NFL's going to Vegas. These and the leagues, like you said, with daily fantasy, the draft DraftKings is like the sponsor of MLB. They're they're advertisements are all over every stadium so they're embracing that angle it reminds me a lot of the legalization of say marijuana because that was one that was talked about for a long time how it doesn't hurt anybody if it's regulated similar to what we're talking about and now you're seeing it california colorado other states are slowly getting there and a lot of it had to do with the government's cut of the situation that's what it always comes back to and like you said the sooner they get that figured out and i hope they get that figured out beforehand i like the DraftKings is FanDuel type deal. Get that lined out, done, signed, put away. And I think it'll be great. You mentioned Will Hill. They already have apps for crying out loud. You don't even have to go to a sports book. You can, you can just make your bets as long as you're like around the casino somewhere or, or in town, basically. It, it, they, they are very much catering to a whole new dynamic. They're just waiting for the call just like the rest of us are. It, it'll be interesting. I, I have a feeling that people in Vegas are – uh, not Will Hill, but just the people in general, because that'll cut out even more people, even though it's not their biggest revenue finder, obviously. That's still a good chunk of people certain times of the year. So that'll be interesting. But, yeah, it should be coming sooner than later. I agree with you on that.
2: Uh, I certainly hope so. And, and you know, I mean, like you said, the marijuana thing is is kind of an interesting parallel, too. I was Actually, I took a road trip. Uh, it was kind of our pre-wedding honeymoon where we went, followed the Indians. We stopped in St. Louis, saw a uh, Cardinals-Dodgers game, saw the Indians in Kansas City, and then drove out to Denver and saw them. And, you know, obviously Denver with it legal. I mean, I've never seen so much construction in a downtown area as I did in Denver. And I have to think some of that was you know, the, the marijuana windfall money. Oh, yeah. And, hey, I mean, if, if you can do something from an infrastructure standpoint with your cut of, of sports betting money, I mean, what, what states are going to say no to getting more money? It's just a matter of drawing up the right plan, getting the right people to push it, Hopefully, having it to a point where it's a, a bipartisan, you know, bill, which would you know help push it through. Um, I just, you know, I, it's one of those things where, it, as long as it's done correctly, I, it, there's no harm in it. It's not going to hurt anything. I mean, it, it's incredible because Major League Baseball pays significant money to a third party in Europe to monitor the betting odds for anything that seems suspicious. So the leagues are already doing this stuff. They're already putting in safeguards for the integrity of the game, that, that buzz expression you know, that they like to use. So you can turn into a drinking game. I mean, they're already taking precautions. So it's not going to change anything from an operating standpoint for them. So hopefully it is sooner rather than later. And uh, you know, the, the, the Daily Fantasy thing is interesting because I, I sort of think with how quickly that popped up and how rapidly popular it got, they almost got caught off guard with it. And then that's why it was you know, this whole big deal. Uh, If sports betting is done gradually, then I think they'll be in better shape.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And the fact that the leagues, we've already said, are embracing it, and they have to notice that people just playing daily fantasy or season fantasy, it brings such a new interest, such a new dynamic of fans that actually care about the situation at all times of the year. Now you throw in people that can wager. Look at Europe at, like, soccer events. You can wager at the stadium. At a kiosk it, it just there's so many elements that and revenue building and so many things they can do it seems too logical but they're obviously taking their time for good reasons it, it, it i just hope it happens sooner than later I'm, I'm on the same page with you i'm pretty sure i ringing on all of this so um i'm looking forward to that someday
2: well so am i man and uh, like i said i i will echo what i told you at the top of the show i think you guys do absolutely fantastic work over there on i uh, you're a great follow on twitter i'm always Interested to see what you're looking at from a DFS standpoint when the lineups come out. So uh, keep up the great work over there, man. And, uh, you know, I'm really hoping for great things for you with this show as well because I think you put on a very good product.
1: Well, I really, really do appreciate that. And, uh, again, it's been good getting to know you, and we will definitely do this again sometime and talk some more. Maybe, you know, Indians in the World Series, all that kind of fun stuff. But, uh, again, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, no problem. Everybody, this was uh, Bench with Bubba, episode 53. Don't forget, check out Adam Burke bangthebook.com or on twitter at skating tripods. until next time i'll catch you guys later hey drew scott here and i'm jonathan scott reminding you that life's better with a home policy from american family insurance they can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto